And so let us hear God's word from Titus 2, beginning in verse 1. But as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. Let the older man be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love, in patience. The older women likewise, that they may be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things. That they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded, in all things showing yourself to be a pattern of good works, in doctrine showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. Exhort bondservants to be obedient to their own masters, to be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back, not pilfering, but showing all good fidelity, that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his holy word. Amen. Well, as we uh, begin here tonight, uh, I want to start by having us uh, look at the broader section here, and if you do have that uh, outline there uh, to take a a look at this. Uh, As I have on this handout, there are four uh, different outlines. They're all very similar, Um, and as we come here now to chapter 2, I think the the last one is is helpful in the sense that it subdivides verses 1 to 10 for us, which I think is, is good. And then I, I do think it's uh, good to see then verses 11 to 15 as another subsection. And so uh, we will look at that. But uh, thus far, of course, we've seen the opening greeting of Paul in verses 1 to 4. Uh, we've seen the uh, instructions to Titus to uh, um, uh, look for elders with these various qualifications. And then uh, in the last section, of course, here in verses 10 to 16, we've talked about the false teaching. And so Paul has instructed Titus to train the elders to understand false teaching so that they can oppose it and uphold the truth. Titus isn't going to be there forever either. And so the, the elders must learn to do this. And so first, Paul told them to oppose those who add to the gospel. Verse 10, most likely a reference to the Judaizers. In verse 11, He teaches Titus to then again teach the elders to oppose those who live like the sinful world. The emphasis here, of course, is the Cretan culture. And then in verse 14, we see uh, that he is to oppose those who, who speculate about the scriptures and then add to the scriptures. And so these these uh, Jewish myths, these apocryphal works and so forth. And then last time we saw at the end of verse 14 through verse 16, um, Titus is to oppose those who add to God's law. And so we talked about 11th commandments, how we add to God's law. Many times uh, taking a law of God and seeking to apply it, but then making that a new law and expecting everybody to live by it and so forth. And somehow my obedience then makes me more holy and more acceptable to God And this then uh, replaces our trust in Christ alone. So after addressing those things, now 
Paul instructs Titus to address these five uh, groups in the home, if you will, these key groups of different peoples. And so, as we just read in verse 2, he starts with the older men, and then in verse 3, the older women, and then in verses 4 and 5, the younger women, and that's connected with the older women, and uh, we'll see that. And in verse 6, we have the younger men, which then is connected to verses 7 and 8, where Titus must be a good example to these younger men. And then lastly, we have verses 9 and 10 with uh, the slaves in the house. So we will uh, make our way through this in the next uh, few weeks or so and uh, look at the different uh, 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 subgroups in the house. So we begin here tonight then with, uh, first of all, verse 1, which again says, But as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. Now, the Greek uh, literally says, but you, you speak. The pronoun is repeated. Um, so first of all, notice then that the word speak. Uh, there are eight different words for speak in verses 1 to 10. So obviously we have this one here. Uh, if you look at uh, the end of verse 3, teachers of good things. Um, if you look at verse 4, admonish. Look at verse 6, exhort. Okay, so we're going to see uh, eight different words here that, um, if you will, expand on the word speak. So eight includes the word speak there in verse one. And so um, <clears throat> Titus is to do this. Now, note then the contrast. We have but here at the beginning of verse one. So after all this about the false teachers in verses 10 to 16 in chapter one, Titus must be different. The church must be different. The elders must be different from the false teachers. Remember back in verse 11, it says that the false teachers were even upsetting homes, uh, subverting whole households is how the New King James uh, puts it. And so Paul now addresses the household uh, to try to preserve it and so forth. Then, of course, we see the emphasis, the repeated pronoun, you, you, obviously speaking uh, to Titus. And so Paul here is commanding Titus to be different from the false teachers and to speak these things to these specific uh, uh, subgroups, if you will, in the house. All right, now, verse 1 then <clears throat> answers the question of what he is supposed to speak, and it says, the things which are proper for sound doctrine. This word here for proper, we can translate as suitable, <clears throat> as fitting, or you could even say that accords with sound doctrine. Now, <clears throat> this word sound, we've already talked about. Chapter 1, verse 9, uh, we saw it there, that they are to be <clears throat> uh, according to sound doctrine, right? Be able to teach that. Uh, in verse 13, the end of the verse says, being sound in the faith. And so here it is again, and we'll see it some more. Um, you recall that the word sound here is the word for health. And so to be sound is to be healthy here, uh, not sick. And so uh, Titus here then is to teach and to speak the things that promote spiritual health. So basically, it's to be consistent with apostolic message, it's to be consistent with the scriptures. The best antidote to unhealthy teaching is the truth. 
But notice what Paul does here. In the last section, Paul was focusing primarily on doctrinal distinctives. We talked about those who are adding to the gospel, adding to the scriptures, adding to the law. Those things are not right. And so we must believe uh, what is true. But in this section, even more so than the last one, though the last one does touch on it. Um, Now the, the focus is on behavior. Okay, so sound teaching must include good behavior. Paul does not go on and give more doctrinal distinctives. He is not giving us a systematic theology. Now, we distinguish between theology and ethics, between uh, <clears throat> what is doctrinally true and then how we live. We distinguish that, and that's fair, okay. But in the end, they go together. We cannot ultimately separate them. Sound theology will result in sound living. Guaranteed. That doesn't mean we're going to be perfect, but there will be a correspondence. Ungodliness is evidence of bad theology. Or, we could say it this way, ungodliness is evidence that we are not living according to the doctrines we might say we believe. And that certainly is true uh, uh, for us. Because There are many doctrines that we hold to. We just don't live consistently. Um, But do you see this connection? Sound doctrine and sound living go hand in hand. So we live in harmony with the truth, mind, will, and emotion. We must be consistent here in this way. And so not only are we to believe differently from the Jews and the Cretans, the false teachers, but we must live differently. Now, certainly Paul addressed that in verses 12 and 13 in the last section, and certainly that's been, um, you might say, hinted at in some of the other words. Um, notice verse 16 of chapter 1, it said, they profess to know God, but in works they deny him. And so they said one thing and they did another. And so again, this idea of right doctrine and right living has been inherent in what Paul has been saying, but now... Uh, We see it here maybe more clearly. Um, And so the false teachers are diseased. They are unsound, even though they said they were believers. Now, this is a a very important point, and I'm stressing it here a little bit as we begin, because our culture does not think this way. We live in a segmented world, and not just because of the critical theories here in the last 10 years especially um, that have tried to segregate us according to race and gender and so forth. Um, You could go back in many ways uh, to Dewey in particular, almost 100 years ago, where we started segmenting the different topics in uh, the educational system and that English class had nothing to do with math class or something like that. Prior to that, you had the one-room schoolhouse, um, you had the McGuffey readers and you know, these kinds of things that, that show that, that, that education and thought, all, it all fit together. Uh, we, of course, have some classical education that continues in this way. But for the most part, we live in a segmented society. So we can have someone go to church on Sunday and live very differently the rest of the week and not see any inconsistency Or we could have someone who goes to church and says they believe in uh, God as our maker and then go to work in some science lab and and swallow whole hog the old earth ideas. 
Um, and these things are inconsistent. And so we live in this culture of inconsistency. Uh, but Paul says, no, okay, we must have sound doctrine and it must affect our living in every way. So this is how he begins. Again, he's been speaking to this to some degree in the last section, but we see it maybe more clearly here now in verse 1. Sound doctrine spills in to ethical living here now, verses 2 to 10. All right, well, with that briefly in mind, let's look then at verse 2. And it says that the older men be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love, in patience. All right, now first of all, let's talk about some of the household codes of conduct. Um, this is not <clears throat> referring to some kind of general way of living or general principles, uh, but uh, they're very specific. Um, now, as you read through this list, there is some generality even in the specificity. Some things are more specific than others. But, you know, there, there were household codes in the ancient world, too. They, the Romans had it, the Greeks had it, the Cretans had it. Um, and so as you read through this code of conduct here that Paul gives, and you read some of these non-Christian codes, there are some similarities. But Paul is uniquely Christian, and there are some things that definitely are, are very different. Um, but uh, you may, you know, run into this at some point. Maybe you've read about some of them already. Um, <clears throat> but uh, their codes, the, the non-Christian codes, primarily focus on the head of the household and uh, how he treats his wife, his children, his slaves, and so on. But maybe more in particular, how they behave toward him, the rights and privileges that he has in this hierarchical system. Men, generally speaking, had many freedoms. They could do lots of things that slaves and children and their wives could not do, including sexual things. And, um, um, and so if you read these codes, you'll see some of these things. Now, as for the Cretan culture, as I've already mentioned there in chapter 1, verse 11, um, these codes were impacting the households in the church. Now, in many ways, this makes sense because it is very likely that only some in the households were being saved, not necessarily every single one. And so you have a mixture of Christian principles and Cretan principles. Add to that, you remember in 1 Timothy, I talked about the new Roman woman. And uh, this is basically feminism of the first century. And so... The first century, for the most part, believed in the Roman world that women were inferior to men. And obviously, slaves are inferior and children are inferior. Slaves had no rights. Um, children, sons, would have some rights, not necessarily daughters. Uh, wives didn't have many rights at all either. And so the women, in some ways, in a good way, uh, we're trying to insist on more freedoms and more rights. Unfortunately, like we've seen in our own culture over the last 150 years, uh, feminism has brought some good things, but it's also led to many problems. And that's uh, what we saw in the, in the Roman world. And Paul addressed it in 1 Timothy, and he is uh, needing to address it here in this section too with Titus. Okay. 
Now, in Crete, uh, there were more, generally speaking, more rights for women, more freedoms for women in comparison to Greece or uh, other parts of the Roman world. But nevertheless, Paul says some very similar things here as he does elsewhere, uh, like he does with Timothy. <clears throat> All right, now, uh, think about it like this. We teach as Christians, the gospel tells us, that we are all equal. We are equal in our sin, right? For all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. We are equal in our sin. We are also equal in salvation. We are all saved the same way, and that is through faith in Christ. So whether Jew or Gentile, or male or female, or slave or free, right? Paul uses some of those distinctions in Galatians uh, 4, for example. Um, And so... Um, how do you then implement that when you're living in a culture that says differently? How do you implement these equalities, these freedoms that we have without acting like a new Roman woman, without embracing feminism, but yet elevating women? How do you elevate slaves without instigating a slave revolt I'll say more about this when we get to this end of this section, but there were millions of slaves, more slaves, we believe, than free people in the Roman culture. So a slave revolt was a huge fear, and usually they squashed them mercilessly. So how do you do that with Christian slaves who have become Christians, and they now have this freedom in Christ? How does this impact life in the home? Important questions. How do men who have come to faith change this hierarchical approach and now treat their wives, their children, and their slaves in a better way? How do you do this when only one spouse believes? And this was very common in the first century where someone, you had an unbelieving family, and one of them came to faith, and it often was the wife or a slave, or even one of the children. How does that then impact a household code? How do you do it, of course, when a slave believes? How do you then respond if your master is a Christian and that he came to faith? All kinds of very important questions. Now, as we reflect on our own culture, we have certain codes Uh, we were forced to follow a certain code here over the last few years, right? If you are a righteous citizen, you will get the shot. You will wear a mask. This is a certain code that was imposed upon us, irregardless of science and medicine. But that's what we were told, okay? Uh, We have household codes in every single one of our homes. Hey, if you go to the Coovert house, there's a certain code there, maybe Spoken, maybe unspoken. You go to the McCoy house, there'll be some things that are similar, but other things that are different. Okay? Same thing if you go to, to our house. Uh, we have certain codes that we follow. And um, um, in our culture, though, broadly speaking, uh, when it comes to slavery, obviously, we don't have officially slaves in our culture. Um, on the other hand, we are all slaves of the state, Try not paying your taxes, and you'll see if you're a slave or truly free. Um, The issue of illegal immigration is actually a form of slavery. 
And uh, so the, 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 once the slaves were done away with, then, of course, it was the Chinese or the Asians that were more or less treated as slaves in our culture. And then it was, uh, you know, the Germans in the internment camps and so forth. And, you know, now it's the illegal immigrants. We don't call them slaves, but they are treated that way in some ways. Obviously, we live in a culture of female empowerment. Men have been emasculated in our culture, and this is a huge problem in the black community. And uh, it's uh, almost unheard of to see a man who actually leads his house in the black community. It's very rare. Um, But it's beyond that. It's not just in the black community. Uh, Obviously, we also live in a society that is specifically targeting families to break down the household codes, the codes that we did have in a general sense in our culture. Well, now, in some ways, they're, they're completely gone. We see that with gay rights. We see that, right, Black Lives Matter, the whole point is to destroy the home, one of their primary principles, and so forth. Um, <clears throat> furthermore, we live in a culture where most Male and female, the husband and the wife, most are both working. There are fewer and fewer and fewer families where that's not the case. The children, of course, are away at school all day. And when they are home, it tends to focus on entertainment and social media. We have um, very many broken homes. I know in some cultures, uh, I think it's England now, there are more broken homes than there are intact homes Percentage-wise, we have more and more people living together who are not married. You know, this is actually very different from the first century. For all of the sinfulness in the Roman Empire, and there was much, they generally had stable families. You generally had the husband and the wife with children and slaves and so forth. So we live in a very, very fragmented culture, uh, and, and it's just getting worse. Um, so <clears throat> what Paul is addressing here in this chapter, in this section, is extremely important. Okay? <clears throat> we are to take households and solidify them, make them Christian and to make Christian households even better, more godly. Okay. Um, <clears throat> now, we live in rural western PA, and so the amount of broken homes is not the same as the inner city. That said, even here in rural western PA, you go around our neighborhood, if you go in a five-mile radius, how many families are in a broken home scenario? Even here. And you compare that to just 25 years ago, and it's, it's definitely going in the wrong direction. As we look at our particular church, we have very few situations in our church, even as we go back in the last you know, 10 to 20 years or something like that, where we have had families here from broken homes. We've had some, but not many. We're an anomaly. This is very unusual. And, and I, I, I hope that you don't take that for granted. We are very blessed. You know, when I went to um, the church in Tennessee, um, 
here I am coming from a home that is intact. And uh, I did have one uncle that never got married and was living with someone and so forth. Uh, but everybody else, even the non-Christians in my extended family, uh, were, were married and had stable homes. Now, I do have now a cousin who's been divorced and so forth. But Naylene had the same thing on her side. So here we go to Tennessee. And there was about a dozen uh, young people, especially, that we worked with on a regular basis. And only two families were not broken. And one of the two might as well have been broken. They were living together, but that was about it. That was very striking to us, to Nalene and I. It was uh, just odd. (laughs) And so when Paul gives these words, this isn't just something for the first century. This is something that has incredible impact for us today. So we then need to heed carefully these words and to preserve some of the intactness that we have in our church, in our church families, and pray that as the next generation comes and the older generation passes and so forth, that that God will be gracious to keep uh, the household codes intact uh, here in in our community, in our church community, and then even beyond. Well, this in and of itself is is a a huge topic, and I've said a fair amount of things here about it uh, tonight, but certainly we could continue. But notice here where Paul begins. He begins with the older men in the house. Makes sense, doesn't it? Because men are the head of the house, and to start with the man makes sense. And in the older man, he uh, would be the head, because in many... um, cultures throughout history, even today, uh, they didn't have the segmentation that we have today here in our culture. And so, um, you know, think of Abraham, for example. He had all his slaves, he had his sons, and then his grandchildren, and they all stayed in the same place. It was only later on that we see uh, maybe they go and live elsewhere. But it's quite possible that Isaac and Rebekah stayed with Abraham, at least for part of the time. Um, and so, you know, these multi-generational uh, families living together, it makes sense you'd start with the older men. And as the older men go, in many ways, so goes the house. Okay, so if they're going to be godly, if they're going to live according to a Christian code, then everybody else is going to follow suit. Theoretically, of course. But uh, it makes sense that he would start here. All right, now, the word here for older men is not the same word for elder. It's very similar, but it's a different word. The word for elder is presbyteros. So we, right, we get Presbyterian, we get presbytery, presbyter, those kind of words. Uh, This word is presbutis. So the ER is not in there. It's not presbyteros, but presbutis. So it's, it's a related word, but it is a different word. And so Paul is not talking about elders here. He's talking about older men. Now, as I mentioned with elders, right, elders typically were older and wiser and experienced. Um, But not all older men are elders. And so note this distinction here, first of all. Uh, Secondly, in the first century, an older man was considered 
to be older if he was 50 or up. So Stan, that includes you and me. <laughs> okay, not just Joe. <laughs> okay, in our culture, <coughs> excuse me, we generally think of an older man as someone who's retirement age. How does it depend? If you're in your 20s, you think anybody over 30 is old. But um, generally speaking, we think of older men as being retired. Um, but again, in the first century, <coughs> 50 and up uh, is what uh, that category was. So uh, Timothy here then, or so, sorry, Timothy, Titus is to speak to older men uh, that they be these things. And first he says, sober, sober. Now, I think this is a, a good way of translating the word because the word is emphasizing restraint from excess. Uh, your translation may use the word temperate. It may even use the word self-controlled. Uh, but it's the idea here of not getting drunk, of not being promiscuous, of not being controlled by your desires. Or if we go back to chapter 1, not being lazy gluttons. Those ideas. Instead, the older men are to be sober. They are to be abstinent from these sinful things. They are to practice restraint and self-mastery. They are to be free from self-indulgence, free from squandering things, free from foolish behavior, and so on. Now, obviously, this is true for all believers, right? Every one of us must be sober in these ways. But possibly in Crete, the older men in, in the culture, the older men in the various churches, maybe they were really struggling with this. Uh, we don't know for sure. Uh, but Paul emphasizes this point that the older men are to be sober. Uh, maybe it's because they uh, can't work as much as they did before, maybe have a little more time on their hands, right? Idleness is the devil's playground kind of idea. Uh, maybe they had more money to go out and uh, socialize and drink or something to that effect. But whatever the specific issue, Paul is calling on older men to be sober, to control their passions um, is, is the idea here. All right, now secondly, the New King James translates the word as reverent. And, and that's a fair way of doing it. The meaning here is, is someone who is dignified, someone who is worthy of respect, someone who is serious, who is honorable. Uh, one commentator said, someone who has gravitas. Um, and so people show respect to the older men because of the kind of person uh, that this man is. If the first one is emphasizing behavior, then this one is emphasizing demeanor. But again, you can't ultimately separate that. If your behavior is good, then your demeanor is also going to be very respectable. So this does not mean that older men must be stoic and unfeeling. It does not mean they should be distant and aloof. But it does mean that they are to be respectable, honorable. Unfortunately, we live in a culture that does not really care too much about uh, honor and respect. Uh, maybe we'll see it in the military to some degree, but uh, it's sadly going away, especially for the older generation. The young generations, the ones the best, right? The older ones are just old fogies. Um, uh, it's a, a big loss that we have in our culture, really. Now, the next word here is the word temperate. Um, in this case, I'm not sure this is the best way of translating the word. 
It means self-controlled or more specifically sober-minded. Okay, if you go back to chapter 1 and you look at verse 8, right, the elders are to be hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded. That's the same word. I'm not sure why they would translate it differently. Okay? This is the meaning. <clears throat> okay? Sober in the mind. Not just your behavior, not just with alcohol, not just with sexual things, but in the mind. And so you could say someone, uh, the older men here are to be of sound mind. They are to think correctly. They are to be sensible, thoughtful, prudent. Okay? <clears throat> now, obviously... As we keep getting older, the mind tends to go to some degree. Um, but obviously that's not what Paul is talking about here. We are to be of sound mind. And again, if you're starting, if you will, at the top of the family, the head of the house, this is very important. That we as older men must be of sound mind, of sound behavior, and therefore have honor and respect uh, let's turn a moment to 1 Timothy chapter 3. It's not very surprising that these terms are used with elders. And you remember this in 1 Timothy 3 verse 2, a bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, <coughs> sober-minded, of good behavior. Okay, some same words there. Uh, if you look down at verse 8, same is true for the deacons. Likewise, deacons must be reverent. Okay. And then if you look even at verse 11, likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanderous, temperate, faithful in all things. So elders, deacons, the wives of deacons, and just Christians in general, right? We are to be uh, acting like this. And so <clears throat> as we consider <clears throat> our household way of living, okay, older men, hey, let's seek to do this. And for some of you younger men who are beginning this process of your own household or you're not there yet, okay, keep these things in mind. This is what um, we should be like. All right, now, <clears throat> there is a fourth attribute here, and that is the word sound again. But this one has three parts to it, sound in faith, sound in love, sound in patience. They, they uh, go together here in this way. So while... The older men are being sober and reverent and sober-minded. Then he also <clears throat> must be sound in faith, love, and patience. So just like I said in verse 1, and again in chapter <clears throat> 1, verse 9, <clears throat> excuse me, in verse 13. Uh, so here, this is the idea of health, healthiness. They're not to be sick. They're to be well. They're to be correct. Their faith, their love... Their patience must be in good working order, you might say. Okay? We don't need to go to the hospital for our faith, so to speak. And so it is sound, it is strong, and it's a healthy trust in the Lord. To be sound in faith means that we are not doubting. It means we are not living for ourselves, but we are trusting in God. Okay? We're not blown around by the winds of change or the winds of false teaching. But we're trusting in God. We're obeying him. We're not diseased by the culture. We are living by faith. Now, of course, this doesn't mean we're going to be perfect. But this is what is to characterize us. We're going to be healthy. Occasionally we get a cold. But we're not going to be 
sick unto death, as it were, uh, here in our faith. If you turn a moment to Matthew in chapter 21, and uh, Stan had us read this from Mark's account uh, this morning. Uh, In Matthew 21, this is the context of cursing the fig tree and learning a lesson from it. And note Jesus says in verse 21, Assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but also if you say to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, it will be done. And whatever things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. This is having a sound faith. Trusting in God. It's not faith in faith. It's not all the zeal that we have, right? It's, it's having faith in God. Trusting in Him. Even if it's as a mustard seed, right? We can do many things. Not because we have such great faith, but because of God. We're trusting in Him. And so to be sound in the faith is... Uh, similar to what Jesus says uh, here in this passage. <clears throat> All right, so if we come back here then to Titus, next, the older men are to be sound in love. Now, <clears throat> it doesn't say what the object of that love is, but I think it's fair to say we are to love God and we are to love one another. We are to love fellow believers, even unbelievers. Okay? <clears throat> We're to love God and our neighbor. Uh, seems to be the idea. And so older men are not selfish, <clears throat> they're not loving in a sensual way here, but they love. Loving God, serving others, okay, these kind of ideas. Uh, <clears throat> our culture, the only thing they know about love is something to do with sex. Okay? And obviously that's part of it, but there's so much more to love than just the sexual relationship. And so <clears throat> we... Again, especially as older men, must love soundly in a healthy way. And uh, it's hard, again, when our culture says differently, or if you've been abused sexually, it can be hard to love in a good, healthy way. Uh, But we are, as older men, to love one another. And, of course, ultimately God. Excuse me. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And we have the famous love chapter here. Uh, Let me just read a portion of it. In 1 Corinthians 13, and let's uh, read verses 4 to 7. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Do you know some older men who do this, who love in this way? I'm sure we can think of older men who don't do this and are very different, but we as God's people need all of us, but again, especially the older men should live here in this way. All right, well, obviously we could say more, but let's turn then to the last one. Um, And he says that older men are to be sound in patience. Uh, This is the idea of endurance, perseverance, to endure the struggle of the Christian life. Um, 
As I said a moment ago, our culture views older men as has-beens. They really have no uh, benefit to our culture. <clears throat> Unless they can win you an election, you can use them as a Manchurian candidate, but that's another story. Um, <clears throat> our culture emphasizes the young. Those are the ones that have value. Okay? Um, but Paul, in some ways, is saying the opposite. Older men can display patience and perseverance in the faith. The younger can learn from the older men as they persevere in uh, the struggle of the Christian life. Uh, this idea of patience uh, certainly means that we're patient with our grandchildren or something to that effect, yes. But I think Paul's primary point here is that we are patient as we are awaiting the return of Christ. And so because of this, the idea of patience and hope are very similar. You know, when we think of faith, hope, and love, right? We, we, we see those three together, right? 1 Corinthians 13 ends that way. Uh, but faith, patience, and love are not that much different in the essential meaning. And so <clears throat> waiting patiently for Christ's return as you age, as your body starts falling apart, a patiently waiting for the Lord is a great virtue. That is soundness. And that's a great example uh, for everyone. All right, let's look at a few passages here briefly. Uh, let's turn first to Romans 5. <clears throat> Romans 5, verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character and character hope. A hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who, is given, who was given to us. So obviously you see the connection here with perseverance and hope. They're, they're different, but they're very closely connected. Um, let's uh, uh, turn to one other example here. Um, let's turn to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. <clears throat> and uh, in verse uh, 19, you'll see here the church of Thyatira. And Jesus says, uh, these things, um, uh, sorry, verse 19, I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. And so he starts with some of the good things. And note those three terms are put together, uh, just like Paul does. We could look at other examples. You look at 1 Timothy 6.11. Uh, or First Thessalonians five eight, you know, other passages that put these terms together. Now, once again, all believers should live by this code, but Paul does want the older men to live according to these virtues. When we exhibit them, we are a great example to the whole church, a great example uh, to to everyone who comes to faith. Certainly the elders must do this, but when older men live this way, in addition to the elders, it's a great encouragement for everybody. When it doesn't happen, obviously the church suffers, and the individual family then, of course, suffers. Okay? So 
though people may see us as old fogies, hey, losing our hairs, turning gray, and we don't have much more to, to offer in life, uh, Paul thinks very differently. And uh, so let's, as older men, for those of us who are there now, for those of us who are getting there someday, let us seek uh, to live this way for the benefit of our families and, of course, the benefit of the church. All right, well, uh, we'll pick up with this then, Lord willing, uh, next week. Let's pray together. Our Father and God, we thank you for uh, your word here to us, and we thank you for uh, the, uh, the instruction here. Uh, we are thankful, Lord, that you've made us uh, families, and in our particular church, we are so thankful that uh, so many of our families are intact. Uh, certainly, we all have our, our uh, problems and difficulties, but uh, we thank you for that blessing, Lord. And we pray that you would uh, uh, continue to grow us as families. And in particular, we think of the heads of the homes, the, the older men in our, in our families, that you would strengthen us to, to live this way, <clears throat> to act this way, to uh, have uh, a, a sound mind and a respectable demeanor and, and the things that we've talked about. Lord, help us in this, and that we might uh, be a great blessing and benefit uh, to our families and to the church and even to those around us as they observe that our family is maybe very different from theirs. Um, so again, we thank you for the blessing uh, that you've given to so many of us. And uh, we pray that that would continue into the generations to come. Um, we are thankful that uh, you have not left us alone in this. You've granted us your spirit. And so please strengthen us. Uh, to honor you here in these ways. We pray uh, this then in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat>